Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. The word that's come to my mind this morning as we've been sharing together has been the word grace and just how great that grace is. We sang amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And only as we can accept that grace can we then sing holy surrendered Lord divine and make the commitments that we, we made in that song of, of being true to him, of bidding farewell to the world and doing everything that Christ asks us to do. Grace and humbling ourselves before the cross of Christ is a vital part of the Christian walk. So this morning I would like to bring you a message on humility, and I've titled the message this morning, Humility, a Salvation Issue. And sometimes we, we maybe examine parts of our lives and say, is, is this a salvation issue? Is this, is this really a, a big deal? Does it make it or break it issue for us? And I want to submit to you this morning that humility is a salvation issue for the Christian. So I invite your attention to Philippians. We're spending time in Philippians 2, but I just going off of the songs that, that we just sang and off of uh, the comments I just made at the opening here, looking at Philippians 3, and we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, so this is immediately following Paul's admonition to, to be humble as Christ humbled himself. And he's saying in, in chapter 3 here that, hey, if anybody has reason to boast, if anybody has reason to be proud of who they are and of what they've done on their own, it's, it's me. That's what he's saying. And he lists all these credentials in the beginning of, of chapter 3. And then he gets to verse 7 and says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He looks back to the path that he was on in life and how God stopped him on the road one day and extended his grace and light into his life and turned his life around. And that's what he puts his hope in. And that's what our hope needs to be in this morning as well. Not in things that we have done. Sometimes when we, when we think of humility, we, we talk about what we should not be, right? We talk about pride. And, and I think that's, that's fair, but sometimes I think uh, rather than focusing on what we should not be, we should focus on what we should be. And so I want to focus more on the humility uh, being the inverse of pride this morning. And the definition of humility is that. It's, it's freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. Not being proud or haughty, not arrogant. Has the idea of, of something that's, that's lowly, that's down to earth, rather than something that's high and lifted up. Some of you who are into carpentry sometimes use the phrase that a nail is sitting a little proud. It's above the wood yet, right? It needs pounded down in a little bit more so it's flush with things. 
And I think maybe sometimes humility, we also, we get this idea of humility is, is walking around kind of dejectedly or, or not, not being confident in who we can be in Christ. Or we, we self-deprecate. We say, oh, I'm not, I'm not good at this. I'm, I'm really not that good at that. And that's maybe not true. God has given you gifts. God has given you abilities. And so I, I like how, how C.S. Lewis put it when he said, humility is not thinking less of oneself, as in looking down on ourselves, being, being down on who we are, but rather humility is thinking of oneself less. It's just not thinking as much about yourself and caring about other people, the focus being elsewhere. Humility is not thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less. So why do we need humility? Why is, why is that part of the Christian's calling in life? And I'd like to take us all the way back and think about Satan and his falling from heaven. What was the reason that that Satan was expelled out of heaven. We, we can read in, in Revelation 12 where there's a battle between Michael and, and his angels and Satan is, and his angels and Satan being removed from heaven. But I'd like to look, uh, we're going to spend time in Philippians, but I'd also like to look here in um, Isaiah, read some verses from there. Isaiah 14 Breaking in here in the middle of, of the chapter, at verse 12 of Isaiah 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's why. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be like God. And no one can be equal to God. And that is why he fell. Don't those words sound awfully familiar as we open up our Bibles to Genesis? What did Satan say? What did the serpent tell Adam and Eve? He said, you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. And so mankind ever since has had an issue with pride. Wanting to be like God. They thought they knew better than what God had told them. And so they chose their own path and the consequences. Fast forward a few chapters to Genesis chapter 11. We have the account of the Tower of Babel. What, what, was, the, what was going on there? These people were of all, of one mind and of, of one, they were working together. And what did they say? They said, let us make a name for ourselves. 
verse 4 of, of chapter 11. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's make something great here that reflects on us. And God says, he comes down and looks at, at what they've done. And he says, I'm going to scatter this. How are we tempted to create a name for ourselves today? You know, the world around us, this, this fallen world, this, the pride of life that we are um, naturally born with, that's part of our fallen man. This world is, is pressuring us and saying, you need to check off these boxes to live the American dream. You need to do these things. You should own a big house, or maybe two, or maybe you need to uh, take fancy vacations. Or if we don't have those things, at least we can carefully craft what our lives look like online. Polish our resume, use fancy job titles on our LinkedIn profile. Become a keynote speaker and make it somewhere at a big conference. All these things that the world says are marks of success. People talk about making a personal brand for themselves. Sounds a lot like Genesis 11 where God said, that's not what I want. That's not what you should be going for. God comes down and he looks at the little empire that we've built. He says, who made you? Who gave you life? Who gave you breath? And these words should be a warning to us. God says, I resist the proud. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on that side of God. I don't want God to be resisting me in life. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. God hates pride. Why does God hate pride? It's because it draws the glory that's due him that should be pointed at him, should be reflected back to him. And we're reflecting that on ourselves. We're taking credit that does not belong to us. Further, have we, have we thought about how humility is so integrated into the salvation story and the grace that we talked about? Again, if we're there in Philippians, I'll just, maybe I'll read uh, Philippians 2, 1 through verse 22 at this time, and then we'll, we'll come back to it, referencing it in some different sections here. But I especially, this is a familiar passage to many of us, but I'd like, to, like us to especially think about verses 7 and 8, with humility being so vital, so integrated into this idea of humility. Philippians 2.1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, 
having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. We'll stop there. Where would we be without the humility of Christ? We wouldn't have a reason to be assembled here this morning. So in that sense, humility was a salvation issue, right? Without humility, Christ would not have, would not have come to, to earth. He would not have died for you and me. He would not have deemed it worthy to save a wretch like me. Except for humility. Not just to leave heaven and come down to earth, but then to also die a humiliating death in my place. So a few things for how to get humility in our lives. I think first we need to recognize, we've been talking about grace already this morning, but recognize our need of that grace. Recognize that naturally our hearts are, uh, as the writer says, our hearts are stone. And God wants to take those hearts of stone, he wants to replace them with a heart of flesh, a heart that beats with compassion, a heart that's tender 
towards his leading. Now, why do our hearts need transplanted by the gospel? It's because pride comes from there. Pride comes from our natural heart. A number of passages we could look at, but Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Pride comes from our natural heart. And so our heart needs to be changed. I think another big aspect of this, we, we know David was a man after God's own heart. And I was reading this past week from 2 Samuel, and I was just really struck with David when when he wants to build a temple. And I'm actually going to read that. So if you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I just want us to note David's response here. I think one of, one of the things that, that can help us with humility is, is practicing gratitude. Gratitude helps us recognize where things come from. Supper did not just magically appear on the table. Somebody spent time and effort doing that. This assembly here, you, all of you sitting here, I had nothing to do with that. I wasn't around when they decided to start a church here. I can look back at my life and see so many things that God has done to bring me here to be with you all. There are a lot of things to be grateful for. They're not things I can take credit for. We think about the Israelites. They had, you know, they're commanded to have these fringes on their garments. They're required to keep these various feasts. They're setting up these altars different times and places. Why? To remember what God has done for them and to keep them humble. Especially like when, when Samuel took took a stone and and set up the Ebenezer. Hitherto has the Lord helped us. God has brought us to this place. And here's a tangible reminder of that. That is God who has delivered us from these Philistines. It's not us. It's not our hands that have done this. So 2 Samuel 7 opens with with David wanting to, to build a house Prophet Nathan says, yeah, go ahead. And then God says to Nathan, wait, you need to go back to David and say, no, you're not going to do it. I appreciate the thought, but your son's going to build this instead. But what's the promise that is given to David? God is saying, you know, up to this point, I've I've not had a permanent place. I've just, I've lived in a tent but I'm going to establish a permanent place now. Verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. This idea of, okay, you guys are permanently settling here. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time 
that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. When thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. God's saying, you, the Israelites, I'm done moving you around. You've conquered the enemies that are around you, and I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours. And David, your kingdom, your throne is going to be established and going to continue here. And what does David do in response? He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, I've been a pretty good fighter. You know, it was Goliath and all these other people I killed, conquered the land and secure now and I should be king. No, what does David say in the, in the rest of the chapter here? Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of men, O Lord God? So he's saying, God, you've, you've brought us to this point, and that, that was a small thing for you to do. But now you're, you're also talking about me and my, my family, my, my lineage. Verse 20, And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. I didn't know anything apart from you. You, you showed me the things that I know. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said, and let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee in house. Therefore, as thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God. And thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore, now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. 
And with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. I'm just struck with how David's focus throughout this passage is, God, here are the things that you've done for me. Here are the things you've done for Israel. You you chose this group of people. They were not worthy. They were not more worthy than any other group of people to be the people of God, but God chose them. And if we look back where Moses is talking about the children of Israel before he dies, he's saying that. He's saying, God did not pick you people because you were something special. God picked you to do his work, to show the nations around you who I am through you. This is not something for you to take credit for. And we see David here reflecting that back to God and saying, God, you are the one who has done this. How about our own lives? When we're tempted to say, yeah, I did, I did pretty good back there. I was all right. think when those thoughts come to our mind, we are failing to remember, to recognize all the things that happened for that moment, that event, that accomplishment to take place. The generations before us who have been faithful, the air that we breathe, every breath that we take is a gift to be used well. For God. And we don't deserve any of it. So practice gratitude. I think we also need to pray for humility. Pray that God would help us to be humble. James 4 talks about praying for humility and we have the, the account there. We often use it when we, we say, you know, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or we'll do that. It comes from, from that passage. But it's, it's not just about recognizing that, that, God, you hold tomorrow in your hands. And if it's, if it's your will, if you allow it to happen, then it will happen. It's also a deep recognition that, that things aren't happening without his, without his blessing. So the things that we're able to do are things that he allows us to do and gives us the strength to do. And as we recognize that we can do all things through Christ, I think there's a blessing and a peace there. It's not this lack of confidence and this, I can't do anything, but rather it's, God, you've given me gifts and abilities, and through you, I want to use those for your glory. Again, back to Philippians, our main text here. Verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God wants to use you. God wants to be glorified through you, through your life. That's why you're here. It's to bring glory to your creator. It's not about you. Life is not about you or I. It's about bringing him praise.
It's a recognition that, God, I'm, I'm nothing apart from you, but yet you've given me these gifts and these opportunities to join in your work of, of showing your glory to the people around me. This awesome work of redeeming mankind to yourself. You want me to be part of that. It should be humbling to us to be asked by an almighty, perfect God to help in his work. Humility also is a requirement for brotherhood. And Philippians 2 here talks about this. The first few verses here. Especially verse 3 and 4. And there, there are some parallel passages we could go to. We won't for the sake of time. But verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This idea of the things that we do, let's not be doing them as a, as a way of, of getting personal gain. It's not a power struggle of, of me doing something to position myself above you. No, it's not in strife. It's not in self-serving interest. It's not in vain glory. But in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. It's what Christ did, right? None of us are his equal. He descended to earth. He came to our level and lived among humanity, identified with humanity, and then went, you could say, to the lowest um, part of humanity even in dying the humiliating death that was the death on the cross. Proverbs says that contention comes from pride. And I think about that different times. Like if, if I'm having a conflict with somebody, is, is there pride in my heart that's, that's making so I don't understand where they're coming from? Is there something that I am wanting out of the situation rather than submitting to each other? Am I looking out just for my own things or am I looking out for the things of other people, my brothers and sisters? And we jump over to verse 17 here in Philippians 2. And Paul is saying, I'm, I'm being offered up. I'm being poured out. I'm giving my life for the work of Christ. I could boast in all these other things, but no, it's, it's about God's glory. And how can God use me to advance his kingdom? And he's saying he's rejoicing in that service. And he's saying that Timothy also, he's saying this one, this Timothy, he's like a son to me, but he's also like a father to you all. Most people, verse 21, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. 
They're men who are looking out for their own interests. They're not taking care of the flock. And Timothy, he's serving with Paul in the gospel. This humility here. So I think we also should acknowledge the gifts that God has given to us. Okay, I don't, I don't think we should just hide the talents that God's blessed us with. But as we use them, recognize that it's Christ working through us. He gave them to us, and our motivation needs to be to bring Him glory. Because again, as Jesus says in John, without Him we can do nothing. He is our sustaining life and strength. I like Paul's attitude in 1 Corinthians 15.10 when he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. God's grace has made him what he is. He's labored. He's labored well. He recognizes that. He's not ashamed to say that. But then he immediately follows that up and says, it's been the grace of God in me that has enabled that. It's not just been his own power. It's not been his own strength. The fact that he has labored more abundantly than everyone around him is not a reflection on who he is. It's a reflection on who Christ is through him. So in our brotherhood, trust that we would look on the things of others, not just our own things, but the things that we do in all of life, church, business, otherwise, would all be pointed back to the one who has extended his grace to us. And this also goes to the idea of restoring a brother or of, of giving input in each other's lives. Galatians 6, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Give input in humility and also recognize that I'm a fallen creature too, in need of God's grace. And apart from God's grace, I could be in the same situation. I could fall in that area. And so we do well to interact with humility. Moses was the meekest man alive, the Bible tells us. And I'm, I'm struck by how he cared about the glory of God and about God's glory being shown through the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 9, he's, he's recounting, this is before he, he passes away, he's recounting to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land, all the things that God has done for them. And he goes up to 
mountaintop. He's up there with, for 40 days with God. God gives him the Ten Commandments. God says, go down to these people. They have turned their back on me. He goes down. And then what does he do? He turns around and he goes back up the mountain and spends another 40 days pleading before God's face. No food, no water. Deuteronomy 9.18, And I fell down before the Lord as at the first, so this is the second time, 40 days and 40 nights, I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which he sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. God is pleading for 40 days for God to spare these wayward people in the wilderness. What's, what's his reason? What's his, we're not going to take time to read it, but if you look at the, the accounts in Deuteronomy as well as in Exodus, the, the focus is, God, what's going to happen to your name if you wipe these people out? What will other people, what will the nations around this people think of you? It was not about Moses. It was not about oh, this is going to end my leadership career. It wasn't anything about him. It wasn't even about the people of Israel. It was about God and God being glorified. He didn't want the people spared because he thought that they were worthy or that it would reflect poorly on himself. No, he was seeking God's glory. He wanted God to be glorified. I hope that we can have hearts of compassion like that too. We look at our own lives, we look at the lives of our brothers and sisters, that it's not just about us doing certain things, checking certain boxes. But that when we do need to talk to each other, there's a humility on both parties' part and a desire for God to be glorified in every situation. I'd like to close with a few verses from Jeremiah here. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise love and kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. God doesn't delight in our riches. He doesn't delight in our personal accomplishments, in our glory, in our earthly wisdom, what does God glory in? God delights in loving kindness, in judgment, in righteousness. He delights in those things being expressed and displayed here on earth as they point back to him. And the only thing that we have to glory in, the only thing that we can truly claim glory in is that we can know Christ. We can understand something of him and be his people. Let's pray.
Lord, this morning we come to you and we acknowledge that we are wretched people in need of a Savior. God, the only way that we can be here this morning is by your grace, your life-sustaining grace that has allowed us to live to this point in time. You have helped us hitherto. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of who you are, of how big you are, of how holy you are, and how small we are. Because God, it's only as we understand better who you are that we can gain a proper perspective of who we are not. We can also get a proper perspective of who we are in you. So Lord, I pray that our lives this week would glorify you. We'd recognize that As James says, all good things come from you. They're not our own. They're not something that we have achieved or accomplished on our own strength. But you have given them as gifts to be reflected back to you. I pray that we would be faithful servants of yours this week. In Christ's name, amen.